So a little story time. Uh, over the recent modular break, uh, I took a class on the topic of theology and technology with Dr. Joel Houston sitting back there. Uh, it was a fascinating and thought-provoking, and, and, and to be honest, at times it was a little terrifying uh, to think about how our interactions with technology uh, can just become so automatic that we don't even think about them. Now, I mean, maybe Joel and I, despite our chronological ages, are, are actually just old men yelling at clouds in our souls. I don't know. Uh, but I don't think so. One of the things we talked a lot about in this class is how every new technology that, that comes on the market, I know Steve Jobs is gone now, but you used to, they had the big, the big thing and the, like, he'd be standing there with the giant picture of an iPhone like five stories tall behind him, telling everybody about how this new device was going to make your life so much better, so much more convenient, so much easier, so much more comfortable. And that seems to be a pattern that almost every new technology promises us. We've become kind of obsessed with everything being easy and convenient, with, with removing burdens, with pursuing comfort. But what if some burdens are actually good for us? And what if some comforts are not good for us? What if... What if Comfort and the pursuit of comfort isn't necessarily a reliable guide to what's good for us as humans or as followers of Jesus or into what's God's will for us. And what if what is challenging or, or a hardship or difficult isn't a reliable guide to what's bad for us as humans and as followers of Jesus? And what if it's not a reliable guide uh, to where God's will for us lies? We'll end up back at these questions. You know, more traditional cultures and, and the culture that gave us the Bible seem to recognize that voluntarily embracing hardship could be good for us. Our culture doesn't seem to recognize this or certainly does not celebrate it in any way. And so that's, that's why for this season of Lent we're going to be sort of parking on Jesus' temptation in the desert. Uh, if you were here Last Sunday, uh, when Pastor Heather was, was leading us through sort of an overview of that passage, we talked about how that, it's a traditional passage to look at for the first Sunday in Lent, but we're going to just spend the whole thing here. There's a lot that's really important for us. And, and it, it, honestly, Jesus' time in the desert, he was doing some things that were uniquely his to do as Messiah, as the Son of God, but he was also laying out a path for us to follow. Because what he lived in the desert, he also taught in his ministry, he also fulfilled in the cross, and he also left for us to follow in, in his path. And so for the next three sermons, we're going to look in turn at each of the Lord's temptations in the wilderness. Specifically, we're going to look at them in terms of the desires that the devil was appealing to when he tempted Jesus, and how those threatened to distract him from his mission. And as I said, we'll see that what he lived in the desert, he also taught to his followers. And we'll see how these temptations, with their accompanying desires and distractions, are true for us as followers of Jesus. So let's just flip back to that passage. I'd invite you to stand. Matthew chapter 4. We'll be looking at quite a lot of, of Scripture today throughout the course of our message. 
So at the beginning, we'll just turn and refresh our memories as to Jesus' first temptation. Matthew 4, just the first four verses. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Last Sunday, as I mentioned, Pastor Heather took us through the whole of Jesus' temptation narrative and explained, as well as an overview of that, how it relates more generally to the season of Lent. Uh, we talked a little bit last Sunday about how, how Lent is, is a lot more than just testing human self-control. It's a lot more than just this, this token giving up of something for a season, although it looks like this year for Lent we're all giving up spring, so... There's that. But it's more, it's more than just the, the kind of stereotypical cliche, I'll give up something, you know, some cheesy little thing that I really wasn't that interested in anyhow. It is, though, a season where it's right and proper and good to deny ourselves some things, some comforts. Doing so in, in prayerful seeking of the Lord can help clear out some space for following Him more faithfully and more free from the distractions that are always out there. So Lent is, if I can put it this way, voluntarily embracing the desert. So let's just look at, at the, the idea of, of the desert. Before we jump right into Jesus' temptation number one. Why, why is Jesus out there in, in the desert in the first place? Well, He's seeking solitude with God. And, and seeking solitude with God doesn't necessarily exclude being tested while he's out there. Besides this one specific and major time of going out into the desert or the wilderness or a deserted place, depending on your Bible translations, Jesus seems to have done this frequently uh, throughout his ministry. He would withdraw from people and go away into the desert, into the wilderness, find a deserted place, and spend time alone with his father. Uh, frequently, because it seemed people were always coming to him with their, with their needs, he would even go out and spend all night alone in a deserted place, alone with his father. But by going into the desert, Jesus is also following in the footsteps of Israel's famous leaders. Think of Moses. Think of Moses for a minute. Thanks, Heather. 
Think of Moses. Before he led the Israelites out of, out of slavery in Egypt, what did he spend? He spent 40 years where? Out in the, poor guy, right? 40 years out in the desert, little period of, of leading the Israelites out of slavery, and then 40 more years in the desert. But the first time out in the desert, he was just out there for 40 years being prepared for his, his time of leadership, for his, his public ministry, being refined. It might seem like a long detour, but in God's way of doing things, this time spent in the desert is not a detour. It's formative. It's refining. It seems to make sense that Jesus went out into the desert to spend time alone with his Father, but can we say in some sense that Jesus needed to be refined or prepared? He didn't have any, any sins or shortcomings that he needed to confess and deal with, it, get purged away uh, the way we might. Well, no, he didn't have to go out into the desert to be cleansed from his sins. And yet, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 5 that Jesus learned obedience in some sense, and we can delve into that more deeply if we wanted to, but learned obedience from what he suffered. I think his time in the wilderness would be a primary example of how he learned that. So he's spending time alone with his father. He's following in the footsteps of Israel's famous leaders. And he's also following in the footsteps of Israel as a whole, as a nation. As I just mentioned, Israel spent 40 years in the desert before they entered the promised land. Because, well, for them it was because they were being judged. And they spent most of the time, they had to spend that time in the desert because they disobeyed God. And they were sentenced to wander in the desert. And during that time, they spent most of it still disobeying God. It was not a very successful endeavor for Israel. Jesus is going out into the desert to succeed where they failed. And this becomes clear in the way he interacts with the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll unpack this more in this message and in the rest of our, our series as a whole as it moves along. So there's the desert. Let's think about the actual temptation, this first one, to, to turn rocks into bread and, and how that works. There's Jesus. He's gone off into the wilderness on his own. He's hungry. And then the devil comes to him. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And there's a lot in this short little statement that we need to unpack. Let's start with the if statement. Actually, let's back up to the previous chapter. We know this well. Jesus is baptized by John in the River Jordan. And what happens? We all know this. The Holy Spirit descends from heaven as a dove. And there's a voice from heaven. The Father declares, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now let's dig a bit deeper into that. A lot of scholars are going to say that this, this statement, This is my Son, my beloved Son, this echoes... Psalm 2. It's not a direct quote, but the ideas are pretty clear. In Psalm 2, the Lord declares to his anointed one, you are my son. And then the psalm talks about how that anointed one will eventually rule the nations. Scholars also point out that the well-pleased or, or delights in language that was spoken over Jesus at his baptism is an echo of Isaiah 42, where the Lord introduces his servant, who will, we find out later, redeem God's people 
but redeem them through suffering. And so the devil comes, and the devil does what the devil has been doing since the very beginning. You remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent, the devil, comes, and he says to Eve, did the Lord really say? And he, he, he quotes the Lord, sort of, but he leaves things out, and he, he twists it. And this is what he's doing here to Jesus. It's important we know what the devil says and, and what he does, does not say. He's calling Jesus' identity into question, of course, and we all get that, but he's doing it in this, this really subtle and sophisticated and dark kind of a way. Note, he doesn't say, he doesn't quote God word for word and say, if you are God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. He just says, if you are God's son. You see what he's doing? He's, he's extracted the, the position, the son of God, Messiah, ruler, from the rest of what defines it in the words that the Father has just spoken. The love relationship Jesus has with his Father. Set that aside. And the call to be the servant of the Lord who will suffer. Set that aside too. See what he's doing? Already implicit, even, even in that accusation. Even before he actually puts the temptation before him. There's a twisting. There, there's this attempt to, to shift the playing field. That's subtle and it's dark, but it's, it's how the devil always operates. I think we need to get this, though, for to understand why this, this temptation matters and what it's actually about. Because on the surface of it, turning some stones into bread doesn't seem to be so bad. I mean, the Gospels record numerous instances where Jesus does food miracles where he multiplies food in miraculous fashion turning water into wine and, and turning a few little sardine type fish and so, some bread into food to feed a crowd of thousands we see him enact food miracles on numerous occasions so what's the problem and if we're talking about the desire for comfort well some food after you've been Fasting for 40 days, that, that's not comfort, that's a need. You're literally starving. I think the problem here, I, I mean, besides the fact that it's the devil telling him to do it, that kind of big hint that maybe this isn't a good idea, right? But aside from the fact that it's the devil telling him and that's not a good idea, in tempting Jesus to confirm his identity, do this thing, Jesus, confirm your identity, He's actually tempting him to forsake his identity. This is what I think is going on. The devil is trying to tempt Jesus that he can set his own agenda and be his own kind of son of God. That he can have the position as son of God without either the, the loving relationship with his father and without the need for serving in humility and even serving in suffering. If Jesus gives in to this temptation to confirm his identity in this way, the, the very doing of the thing that he's, he's being tempted to confirm his identity will actually deny his identity. He will be abandoning his trust in the Father and his commitment to his mission. If Jesus takes the easy way out here, what's that going to mean for the rest of his mission? If he says... If he says yes to the easy way out here, what will that mean when it comes time to say yes for, for betrayal, to the 
the whipping and the, the, the suffering, the cross, saying yes to, to pain, ultimately to death. Of course, Jesus does, does not do this. He resists the temptation. He resists the devil's misuse of God's words by properly using God's words. He quotes from Deuteronomy. And this is, this is where we need to see how Jesus is succeeding where Israel did not. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, affirming that man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Now that's memorable, but it's also part of a larger context. We need to look at Deuteronomy 8 a little bit more. So let's look at how this relates to Israel. Israel, by this point in the story, has spent 40 years wandering in the desert. The original generation that came out of Egypt with Moses has pretty much all died off. And Moses, who is now very old, is about to depart as well. He's not going to enter the promised land with the people of Israel. And Deuteronomy is his last chance to exhort the people of Israel to get it right, to follow the Lord, to stay faithful, to not repeat the mistakes that their fathers did where they failed. So let's look at this passage. I'll just read a little bit more fully from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger And then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you, here's the quote, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. You see how this works for Israel? Obey the Lord, follow his leading, trust that he will provide. And this is, this, this learning to trust the Lord is learned counterintuitively, we might say, more through hardship and discipline than through comfort. So what happened to this, this second generation of Israelites? Well, on the one hand, we could say, well... It seems that they succeeded where their fathers failed. They, they did occupy the, the promised land. They did go in, unlike their fathers. But did they succeed? Hardly. And, and Moses, if you read Deuteronomy, he seems well aware of the struggles that this people is going to face. So he goes on, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6 and following. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs, gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, 
vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. That sounds incredible. That's the picture of the good life in an ancient Near Eastern world. This, this is it. But then look at what happens, or at least what is strongly predicted to happen. Deuteronomy 8, verse 10 and following. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this seemed to be Israel's repeated story. Even their promised blessings for obeying God turned into occasions for them to forget God and just try to rely on their own wisdom, their own strength, and their own resourcefulness. When Israel pursued greater comfort, they so often forgot God and imagined themselves to be self-sufficient. And, and we know the story over and over again. This cycle continues. They forgot the Lord. The Lord judged them. The Lord raised up deliverers. Over and over it goes. That's their story forgetting the Lord when things get too good. And it seems that that's our story too. One of the things I hope we can get out of this series is, is to view Jesus' temptation in the wilderness as, as a sort of pattern or a sort of picture for so much of the rest of his teaching. So on the one hand, he's succeeding where Israel failed. He's going to trust the Lord and keep on trusting the Lord and not forget the Lord. On the other hand, he's also succeeding where we fail. We, we face the, the same temptations to give in to the desire to pursue comfort, and ease and convenience, to do almost anything to avoid difficulty or hardship, and to do those things rather than, than trust in the Lord. why so much of Jesus' teaching throughout the rest of the Gospels continues to center around some of these same themes. Just flip over a page or two in your Bibles. You don't even have to go anywhere, maybe on the same page, and depending on how your Bible's laid out. Just flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin rust in some translations, destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you see how Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount about trusting God and not pursuing comfort at the expense of that. Trusting God even for the basics and needs of life like food. Do you see how that would have been shaped by his time out in the wilderness and facing these temptations? I mean, it's one page apart in the Bible. I don't know how I'd really never considered how direct the connection actually was before. Do you see how this all flows together? Do you see the, the clear theme of, of resisting the temptation toward comfort and the, this false sense of self-sufficiency? Do you see how what Jesus was living out in the wilderness, what he was fighting these temptations for, was the same thing that he taught to his followers about how to live and how to live faithfully and obey God. Though God knows we need it, man does not live by bread alone, the scriptures tell us. Though God knows we need it, our life is more than food, Jesus reminds us. And if our life is more than even something we need, like food and, and clothing, even base level needs, how much more is it than, than just comfort? How much more is it than just piling up more stuff that we don't actually need? How much more is it than just getting the latest gadget that will do something a half second faster? Maybe to borrow from Jesus, how many more half seconds do we need to save before we've added significantly to our span of life? So, how do we land all of this? I mean, we've seen, we've seen Jesus in the wilderness, we've looked back to Deuteronomy, we've looked ahead a little bit to the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked ahead a little bit further than that, recognizing if Jesus takes the easy way out here, what does that mean for his redemptive work on the cross? What about for us? If you're going through hardship that you didn't choose, I mean, maybe, maybe it feels to you like you've kind of just been thrust out into the wilderness. And you're dealing with some, some really heavy stuff. And, and you didn't choose voluntarily to go there. Uh, you find yourself there. Remember this. Hardship is not a sure and certain guide to what is bad for you. And more importantly, hardship is not a sure and certain guide of what is not God's will for you. In other words, because something is hard, 
does not mean that somehow you've fallen out of the will of God. Endurance of hardship, continuing to trust God in that, is good training to keep on trusting him and finding him faithful. Endurance of hardship can train us to trust God. But maybe that's not, maybe things are quite the opposite for you. Maybe you find yourself in a place where things are going well. Remember this. Remember the warning to Israel. Remember the warnings in the Sermon on the Mount. The pursuit of more comfort is not a sure and certain guide to what is good for you or what is God's will for you. Whereas the the endurance of hardship can train you to keep on trusting God, the pursuit of increasing comfort can train you to think of yourself as self-sufficient. Strange and counterintuitive as it may seem, this sort of willful, willing embrace of, of hardship and even suffering has kind of always been a standard practice for winning against temptation. It's paradoxical, right, that, that putting yourself in a place where you might seem to be weaker and doing that willingly actually can make you stronger in resisting the temptations of the devil. I mean, older spiritual theologians used to talk quite a lot about mortification of the flesh. And, and sometimes that was helpful, and sometimes it went to some kind of weird places really fast. But nevertheless, this, this sort of practice of willingly embracing some hardships has always been a standard part of the playbook in how you beat sin and temptation. Willingly embrace hardship, right? Simplify and, and strip down the things of your life that are cluttering it up and distracting you to the point of, of significant discomfort, even weakness. I'm going to conclude with a celebration of the Lord's Supper. And, and therein we have a picture of, of our Lord who did that very thing, right? Willingly embracing hardship suffering, weakness. Of course, you can't see my my notes here, but in the passage from Deuteronomy, and, and just frequently throughout here, the word remember is underlined quite a bit. How often the Lord has to tell us, remember this, don't forget that. And he's given us a way to remember what he's done for us to remember that pursuing comfort might not actually be good for us to remember that hardships and suffering can actually be redemptive right? we see Jesus living this in the wilderness we see Jesus teaching this in the Sermon on the Mount and ultimately we see Jesus fulfilling this by going to his cross one more look back at that passage in, in Deuteronomy if I may the verse that Jesus quoted to the devil. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Again, it's this kind of interesting paradox, right? The Lord gives them manna, a a sort of bread, I guess, if you will, to remind them that they don't live on bread alone. 
And in the same kind of wonderful way as he did it for the ancient Israelites, he does it for us too. He has given us a sign to remind us, to help us to remember. And as well, we have a sign of which bread is a part to remind us that we don't live on bread alone. That we also live because of what the Lord has done and provided for us.